since I'm not feeling well enough to to teach tomorrow, I decided that I might have a go at making a few um, comments on Handel's Messiah, um, a short improvised lecture, as it were, which um, you can listen to um, in lieu of the class that we had planned. I suggest that as you listen to what follows, you um, are ready to stop from time to time and listen to the recordings of movements that we have spoken about, that I'm speaking about, um, and I will try to refer to the track numbers on Spotify so that you can do that easily. And I suggest also that you have on hand the scores that I've distributed so that you can look at the notation which I'll be making reference to. So I've already given a general introduction to Handel's Messiah in my notes. And I draw attention there to the way in which the work is structured, the conventional sequence of, um, of types of movement, um, where we go from, from recitative, the, the kind of speech song, the narrative, um, through to, to arias, that is to say, the, the developed song forms, and then to the chorus, which tends to um, provide the, the final definitive commentary on the scene um, at its conclusion. And I thought that it might be helpful for us um, today to comment briefly on, um, on first recitative, then an aria, and then on chorus. First, though, um, I thought it might be interesting to, um, to focus on a moment in the drama where Handel breaks out of that conventional sequence of movements. Um, the very fact that he breaks out of it makes it a very dramatic moment. And so I'm interested now in the movements which are on the Spotify tracks. It's, it's tracks 13 through to 15, um, which um, is labeled as scene four in part one of a listening guide. Um, <clears throat> and if you're looking at the, the score, then the, the recitative part of that scene um, is numbers 1.15 to 1.18 at the start of the, um, the excerpt of the score, so it's that packet. So if you've listened to that, then you're ready to hear these comments that follow. At the start of the scene, Handel does something that is completely exceptional in Messiah. He has a, a movement which is known as the Pastoral Symphony, um, which he simply um, entitles Pifa, um, and it's purely instrumental movement. It's a, it's a rare moment, and it's meant, I think, to set the scene, to do so in a very powerful and striking way. The lilting rhythm of that music, notice that it's in a, a compound time, is meant to imitate the sounds of the music made by shepherds. We can imagine the shepherds in the fields with their pipes or their, <clears throat> or their violins um, playing to pass the time. And music in this style is known as pastoral, that's to say, we, it's, it's music that is associated with the sounds of the countryside and especially with shepherds. 
and um, so so in, in, enjoy that that moment of, of of calm and respite. But it puts us for the first time in the Messiah in a specific time and place. We aren't simply hearing prophecies, but we're in fact in a particular place in the fields outside Bethlehem. It's paradoxical, perhaps, that instrumental music is used to do that. Then we have a narrative that follows in Restative, and a soprano voice sings the following four short movements, each one just two or three systems long in the score. This Restative um, tells us the, the narrative, it's the words from the Gospel, um, that speak about the shepherds in the fields. It's, um, it's first of all, we, we first want to say something about the way restorative works itself. If you look at 1.15, notice the, the rhythm. Restorative is, is never sung with exactly the rhythm that's written. The rhythm that's written is rather a prompt to produce a natural sound. If I read the words in this restorative, using approximately the rhythm in Handel's notation, you'll see what's meant. There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Notice how Handel's rhythm is, is easily transferred in my speech to a very natural, ordinary way of reading that text. And, and this is the point of restative. It is a way of singing the text which, which is meant to sound um, like the, the sung equivalent of ordinary speech. None of the words are repeated. Notice how the melody rises. There were shepherds. So in the same, the same place as the principal accent in that phrase is where the melody also rises. Abiding in the field. Notice how abiding, the second syllable of abiding, and the word field are the accent syllables, and Handel makes them both land on strong beats in a measure. Then notice also how the phrase gradually rises up. There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. It's the word flock gets the highest note, and that seems to be the, the natural point of highest interest in the, in the sentence if it's spoken in a way that is, is meant to keep the listener interested. Then let's look at the accompaniment to that passage of restative. There's just a single note in the bass, a C, held throughout the whole of that section. And this allows us to, um, to see how figured bass works very well. That, that, that note, it's marked and played by, by the bassi, that's to say the basso continuo section. And at first is a C written with no figure, which means we are to read a 5-3 chord, so that note C, in fact, indicates a chord of C major at that point. Exactly halfway through the second measure, notice how it's lined up with the word field, we have another figure, 7-4-2, 742 is not one of the conventional figures that you've been introduced to so far. In fact, the only way of interpreting this figure is to simply take it quite literally and to say, well, a two 
is a, a tone higher than the written C, so it would refer to a D. The four refers to an F, and the seven must refer to a B. So we've got a chord of a D, an F, and a B, which we know to be a diminished seventh chord of root B. That's not counting the bass, of course. There's no way to include the C in a, a chord using the other three notes I've just mentioned. We're rather meant to understand the C here as what's termed a pedal note. It's a, a note which is held continuously while the chords change above it. And this chord, the B diminished chord, which is held above the C pedal in the bass, is held for another measure and a half and is cancelled by Handel writing 5-3 at the start of the last measure. Notice, of course, that normally 5-3 goes unsaid, but here it has to be said because it's written to cancel the preceding figure. Following this, we have an accompanied recitative, as it's called. That's to say, the recitative continues with words, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. But in this section, this is what accompanied recitative means, as well as having the basso continua, we now have the strings of the orchestra, the violins and viola, playing as well an accompaniment. Necessarily, the rhythm must be more precise in this section because the, the music has many more moving parts which need to be coordinated. This contrast between recitative accompanied solely by basso continue and recitative accompanied by the, um, by the orchestra, by, by more instruments of the orchestra, is an important genre difference. The first kind of recitative is called secco recitative. Secco means dry in Italian. And the, the dry recitative is, is plain. It has the simplest possible accompaniment of just continuo. The accompanied recitative has a much richer texture and Handel uses it to provide emphasis, to make one step towards the sound of an aria. In that sense, it's, it's one step higher on the of the level of genre dis distinctions. And here, it's noticeable that he's started using a complete recitative after only the tiniest passage of second recitative. And the reason for that is surely that he wants to, to give us an impression of the glory of the angel as, as the angel appears in the sky. The initial recitative was a mundane matter-of-fact statement about shepherds being in fields. That's what shepherds do. But the accompaniment joins in at a moment when something supernatural happens. And Handel very effectively um, <coughs> um, brings out the drama of that moment by bringing the violins in. Then Handel returns to a conventional secco recitative in section 1.17. Here, it's perhaps worth commenting on the figured bass again so we can read this harmony. We start with C sharp in the bass. At first sight, you might think that the implied harmony is a 5-3 chord, 
maybe diminished seventh on C sharp, or maybe we should imagine that there's a raised fifth in C sharp minor chord. When we look at the soprano line, however, we see that's not possible. The soprano line starts on an A, moves up to C sharp, and then the next measure moves up to E. And so we realize the harmony here must be A major. Handel, in writing the score, which he did in a great hurry, has simply not bothered to write the figure six, which is needed under the first note. And this should be a, a warning to us. We need to read figured bass very sensitively with a certain amount of interpretation. Um, sometimes figured bass lines are written out absolutely fully and scientifically, so they leave nothing to the judgment of a performer. But very often, in fact, they require a fair amount of common sense. Here, Handel assumes that seeing the sharp sign in front of the first note, we will assume that the sharpened note is the third of a chord. That's the third of the A major chord, and the chord is therefore a 6-3 chord. The following chord of the F sharp, we must read in the same way. It's a 6-3 chord of D major in first inversion. The G sharp, same principle, it's an E major chord. And then we have the A with a sharp below it. That is then a normal chord of A, and the sharp is, is in form as it's A major rather than A minor, as the key signature might suggest. Moving on to the end of the recitative, I'd also like to comment on the conventional ending, which this is the way in which most of Handel's recitatives end, especially the second recitatives. We have a chord of C sharp major followed by a chord of F sharp minor at the very end. And you'll recognize that that is a perfect cadence in the key of F sharp minor, which is being played in the harmony. Notice how the melody doesn't in fact cadence at the same moment. And that sound is one we can hear over and over again. You've also heard it in recitatives in the Verita Figaro in Mozart's opera, um, just as, as we hear it repeatedly in, in Messiah. It's a, um, a strong marker of the conclusion of recitative. This need to mark the conclusion very strongly and conventionally is, I think, um, interesting in itself. It points to the way in which Handel writes his recitatives. Notice how we've been shifting through keys in this section. There were Shepherds Abiding in the Field was clearly written in the key of C major. The next section, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, is written in the key of F major. Notice one flat in the key signature and the first chord being F. You've got to read the, the C clef in the bass to realize there's an F as a lowest note there. Although it's um, and and that, that finishes in the key of F major too. So you've had two closed sections, as it were. By closed, I mean that they start and finish in the same key. A closed section in C major, a closed section in F major. 1.17 started um, with an A major chord in first inversion, um, at which will be to all people. There was a cadence, a perfect cadence in the key of E major. And then immediately leaving E major, Handel modulated the key of F sharp minor, where he finished. And the following accompanied recitative, and suddenly there was with the angel and multitude of a heavenly host. Notice how again the violins return to illustrate the appearance of the angels. This accompanied recitative 
begins and yes, it begins in the key of D major, but it modulates quickly and finishes in the key of A major. So there's a high degree of total instability in Handel's recitatives. He's constantly modulating. This suits very well a type of movement which is meant to depict narrative and therefore change. Um, the, the changing key goes with the dramatic effect, as it were. But it also means that Handel needs to mark very clearly the tonality of his recitatives because it's constantly changing. Um, if he didn't mark it clearly, our level of perplexity would be very great, and therefore he needs constantly to put in these perfect cadences which confirm for us the key which he's writing in. After the um, recitative, of course, we then have that wonderful um, chorus, um, Glory to God in the Highest, the, um, the sound of the um, the angelic host itself praising God. And it's a, a, a remarkable dramatic moment. We're expecting, of course, after Restative to hear an aria, but the, the aria never comes in this movement. Instead, we're confronted directly with a chorus. The, the chorus, as it were, um, takes the place of the aria. Um, and I, I was commenting that this was perhaps the most dramatic scene in Messiah, so far at least, indeed, I think it's one of the most dramatic scenes in the whole of Messiah, the way which Handel has abandoned his conventional series of movements um, emphasizes that and allows us to experience that very profoundly. Since I'm not feeling well enough to, to teach tomorrow, I decided that I might have a go at making a few um, comments on Handel's Messiah, um, a short improvised lecture, as it were, which um, you can listen to um, in lieu of the class that we had planned. I suggest that as you listen to what follows, you um, are ready to stop from time to time and listen to the recordings of the movements that we have spoken about, that I'm speaking about, um, and I will try to refer to the track numbers on Spotify so you can do that easily. And I suggest also if you have on hand the scores that I've distributed so that you can look at the notation which I'll be making reference to. So I've already given a general introduction to Handel's Messiah in my notes. And I draw attention there to the way in which the work is structured, the conventional sequence of, um, of types of movement, um, where we go from, from recitative, the, the kind of speech song, the narrative, um, through to, to arias, that is to say the, the developed song forms, and then to the chorus, which tends to um, provide the, the final definitive commentary on the scene um, at its conclusion. And I thought that it might be helpful for us um, today to comment briefly on, um, on first recitative, then an aria, and then on chorus. First, though, um, I thought it might be interesting to, um, to focus on a moment 
in the drama where Handel breaks out of that conventional sequence of movements. Um, the very fact that he breaks out of it makes it a very dramatic moment. And so I'm interested now in the movements which are on the Spotify tracks, it's, it's tracks 13 through to 15, um, which um, is labeled as scene four in part one of a listening guide. Um, <clears throat> and if you're looking at the, the score, then the, the recitative part of that scene um, is numbers 1.15 to 1.18 at the start of the, um, the excerpt of a score, so that packet. So if you've listened to that, then you're ready to hear these comments that follow. At the start of the scene, Handel does something that is completely exceptional in Messiah. He has a, a movement which is known as the Pastoral Symphony, um, which he simply um, entitles Pifa, um, and it's a purely instrumental movement. It's a it's a rare moment, and it's meant, I think, to set the scene, to do so in a very powerful and striking way. The lilting rhythm of that music, notice that it's in a, a compound time, is meant to imitate the sounds of the music made by shepherds. We can imagine the shepherds in the fields with their pipes or their, <clears throat> or their violins um, playing to pass the time. And music in this style is known as pastoral, that's to say, we, it's, it's music that is associated with the sounds of the countryside and especially with shepherds. And um, so, so in, in, enjoy that, that moment of, of, of calm and respite. But it puts us for the first time in the Messiah in a specific time and place. We aren't simply hearing prophecies, but we're in fact in a particular place in the fields outside Bethlehem. It's paradoxical, perhaps, that instrumental music is used to do that. Then we have a narrative that follows in Restative. And a soprano voice sings the following four short movements, each one just two or three systems long in the score. This Restative um, tells us the, the narrative. It's the words from the Gospel. Um, that speak about the shepherds in the fields. It's um, it's first of all we we first want to say something about the way restorative works itself. If you look at one point one five, notice the the rhythm. Restorative is is never sung with exactly the rhythm that's written. The rhythm that's written is rather a prompt to produce a natural sound. If I read the words in this restorative using approximately the rhythm in Handel's notation, you'll see what's meant. There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Notice how Handel's rhythm is, is easily transferred in my speech to a very natural, ordinary way of reading that text. And, and this is the point of restative. It is a way of singing the text which 
which is meant to sound um, like the, the sung equivalent of ordinary speech. None of the words are repeated. Notice how the melody rises. There were shepherds. So in the same, the same place as the principal accent in that phrase is where the melody also rises. Abiding in the field. Notice how abiding, the second syllable of abiding, and the word field are the accent syllables, and Handel makes them both land on strong beats in the measure. Then notice also how the phrase gradually rises up. There were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. It's the word flock gets the highest note, and that seems to be the, the natural point of highest interest in the, in the sentence, if it's spoken in a way that is, is meant to keep the listener interested. Then let's look at the accompaniment to that passage of recitative. There's just a single note in the bass, a C, held throughout the whole of that section. And this allows us to, um, to see how figured bass works very well. That, that, that note, it's marked and played by, by the bassi, that's to say the basso continuo section. And at first there's a C written with no figure, which means we are to read a, a five free chord, so that note C in fact, indicates a chord of C major at that point. Exactly halfway through the second measure, notice how it's lined up with the word field, we have another figure, 742. 742 is not one of the conventional figures that you've been introduced to so far. In fact, the only way of interpreting this figure is to simply take it quite literally and to say, well, a two is a, a tone higher than the, the written C, so it would refer to a D. The four refers to an F, and the seven must refer to a B. So we've got a chord of a D, an F, and a B, which we know to be a diminished seventh chord of root B. That's not counting the bass, of course. There's no way to include the C in a, a chord using the other three notes I've just mentioned. We're rather meant to understand the C here as what's termed a pedal note. It's a, a note which is held continuously while the chords change above it. And this chord, the B diminished chord, which is held above the, the C pedal in the bass, is held for another measure and a half and is cancelled by Handel writing 5-3 at the start of the last measure. Notice, of course, that normally 5-3 goes unsaid, but here it has to be said because it's written to cancel the preceding figure. Following this, we have an accompanied recitative, as it's called. That's to say, the recitative continues with words, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. But in this section, this is what accompanied recitative means, as well as having the basso continua, we now have the strings of the orchestra, the violins and viola, playing as well an accompaniment. Necessarily, the rhythm must be more precise in this section because the, the music has many more moving parts which need to be coordinated. This contrast between recitative accompanied solely by basso continua and recitative accompanied by the 
um, by the orchestra, by, by more instruments of the orchestra, is an important genre difference. The first kind of recitative is called secco recitative. Secco means dry in Italian. And the, the dry recitative is, is plain. It has the simplest possible accompaniment of just continuo. The accompanied recitative has a much richer texture and Handel uses it to provide emphasis, to make one step towards the sound of an aria. In that sense, it's it's one step higher on the on the level of genre dis distinctions. And here, it's noticeable that he's started using a company recitative after only the tiniest passage of second recitative. And the reason for that is surely that he wants to to give us an impression of the glory of the angel as, as the angel appears in the sky. The initial recitative was a mundane matter-of-fact statement about shepherds being in fields. That's what shepherds do. But the accompaniment joins in at a moment when something supernatural happens. And Handel very effectively um, <coughs> Um, brings out the drama of that moment by bringing the violins in. Then Handel returns to a conventional second recitative in section 1.17. Here, it's perhaps worth commenting on the figured bass again so we can read this harmony. We start with C sharp on the bass. At first sight, you might think that the implied harmony is a 5-3 chord, maybe diminished seventh on C-sharp, or maybe we should imagine that there's a raised fifth and a C-sharp minor chord. When we look at the soprano line, however, we see that's not possible. The soprano line starts on an A, moves up to C-sharp, and then the next measure moves up to E. And so we realize the harmony here must be A major. Handel, in writing the score, which he did in a great hurry, has simply not bothered to write the figure six, which is needed under the first note. And this should be a, a warning to us. We need to read figured bass very sensitively with a certain amount of interpretation. Um, sometimes figured bass lines are written out absolutely fully and scientifically, so they leave nothing to the judgment of a performer. But very often, in fact, they require a fair amount of common sense. Here, Handel assumes that seeing the sharp sign in front of the first note, we will assume that the sharpened note is the third of a chord. That's the third of the A major chord, and the chord is therefore a 6-3 chord. The following chord of the F sharp, we must read in the same way. It's a 6-3 chord of D major in first inversion. The G sharp, same principle, it's an E major chord. And then we have the A with a sharp below it, that is then a normal chord of A and the sharp is, is in form it's A major rather than A minor, as the key signature might suggest. Moving on to the end of the recitative, I'd also like to comment on the conventional ending, which this is the way in which most of Handel's recitatives end, especially the second recitatives. We have a chord of C sharp major followed by a chord of F sharp minor at the very end. And you'll recognize that that is a perfect cadence in the key of F-sharp minor, which is being played in the harmony. Notice how the melody doesn't, in fact, cadence 
at the same moment. And that sound is one we can hear over and over again. You've also heard it in recitatives in the Verita Figaro in Mozart's opera, um, just as, as we hear it repeatedly in, in Messiah. It's a, um, a strong marker of a conclusion of recitative. This need to mark the conclusion very strongly and conventionally is, I think, um, interesting in itself. It points to the way in which Handel writes his recitatives. Notice how we've been shifting through keys in this section. There were shepherds abiding in the field was clearly written in the key of C major. The next section, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, is written in the key of F major. Notice one flat in the key signature and the first chord being F. You've got to read the, the C clef in the bass to realize there's an F as a lowest note there. Although it's um, and, and that, that finishes in the key of F major too. So you've had two closed sections, as it were. By closed, I mean that they start and finish in the same key. A closed section in C major, a closed section in F major. 1.17 started um, with an A major chord in first inversion, um, at which will be to all people. There was a cadence, a perfect cadence in the key of E major. And then immediately leaving E major, Handel modulated the key of F sharp minor, where he finished. And the following accompanied recitative, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of a heavenly host. Notice how again the violins return to illustrate the appearance of the angels. This accompanied recitative begins, and yes, it begins with the key of D major, but it modulates quickly and finishes in the key of A major. So there's a high degree of total instability in Handel's recitatives. He's constantly modulating. This suits very well a type of movement which is meant to depict narrative and therefore change. Um, the, the changing key goes with the dramatic effect, as it were. But it also means that Handel needs to mark very clearly the tonality of his recitatives because it's constantly changing. Um, if he didn't mark it clearly, our level of perplexity would be very great, and therefore he needs constantly to put in these perfect cadences which confirm for us the key which he's writing in. After the um, recitative, of course, we then have that wonderful um, chorus, um, Glory to God in the Highest, the, um, the sound of the, um, the angelic host itself praising God. And it's a, a, a remarkable dramatic moment. We're expecting, of course, after recitative to hear an aria, but the, the aria never comes in this movement. Instead, we're confronted directly with a chorus. The, the chorus, as it were, um, takes the place of the aria. Um, and I, I was commenting that this was perhaps the most dramatic scene in Messiah, so far at least. Indeed, I think it's one of the most dramatic scenes in the whole of Messiah, the way in which Handel has abandoned his conventional series of movements um, emphasizes that and allows us to experience that very profoundly.
let's now move on to consider um, an aria. You might like before we before the section continues to listen again to um, part one, scene one, and especially the aria "Every Valley Shall Be Exalted." Before coming to that, though, I want to speak very briefly about the preceding movement, Comfort Ye My People, which is described in the score, it's movement 1.2, as an accompanied recitative. It's worth commenting on because the it is the, the closest that a recitative could possibly come to being an aria while still being called a recitative. Notice how we have several features that are more common in arias than recitatives in this piece. For instance, we've got a um, a musical introduction, an instrumental introduction that is um, three whole measures of the orchestra playing before the tenor begins to sing. We've also got extensive repetition of words. Comfort Ye is sung four times at the start, for instance. But the movement keeps moving on from one idea to another rather than ever truly um, returning to the opening. It has a, that open-ended quality that's characteristic of restative. And it also changes in style, most notably at measure 30, where there's a sudden shift. The orchestra ceases to play its um, smooth, regular accompanying patterns and instead plays um, loud unison, loud, not unison, um, loud homophonic chords at the start of each measure, which um, which accompany a passage of a voice that is very definitely in the speaking style recitative and not as lyrical as earlier on. So we see in this movement a, um, a changeableness to the style, which, um, which causes us to rank it with restative. The, the style of the opening part we might refer to as being um, a kind of arioso almost. It is, it, is, um, it is somewhat like an aria, but not quite a full aria. Now let's move on and talk about the, um, the aria itself, 1.3 in the score. Before speaking about this movement itself, we should say something about the aria form itself. Handel had written a vast number of arias in his life. Um, they feature not only in his oratorios, but also in his operas and his cantatas. And certainly in the Italian operas, the most common type of aria is what's called the da capo aria, the aria that is, that is written in a large ternary form of a long um, opening section followed by a contrasting second section and then a full repeat of the opening section, so an ABA form. Handel uses that form very rarely in Messiah. If you want a good example of that form to hear, I suggest listening to um, part three, scene two. It's number 48 on my list and in Spotify, um, it is on the the second disc, um, 
track 15. The trumpet shall sound as one of only two decapo arias in Messiah. Um, and it's a glorious aria it is too with the um, with a trumpet um, and the voice um, acting as, as dual soloists effectively. The da capo form marks that aria out as, as one of the most important arias in the whole work. It's certainly one of the longest. And um, it seems that Handel's choice to use da capo form very rarely for his arias is due to his wish to have shorter movements which make their point more succinctly. What then is the form of those shorter movements? Let's consider every valley as an example. We have an instrumental introduction to the aria that's nine measures long, and then the solo tenor voice begins. Notice that when the tenor voice enters, it enters singing a tune we've already heard. In fact, the tune is identical to the melody played by the first violins in measure one. And as we continue, we realize that, that Handel has, has primed the way for his vocal melody, as it were, by including um, the most important thematic ideas in the movement in that, that opening section. Let's look ahead and observe other places where we have ideas from the, the opening. Um, we um, see the falling idea at measure 13 in the voice um, to be related to the, the falling figures in measures two and three. We, um, if we look ahead a little bit further, um, we see how at measure 24 in the violins, we have return of the opening figure, but this time transposed, it formally started on E, outlining a chord of E major of its rise, E, F sharp, G sharp, B. Here, it starts in a B and outlines a chord of, of B major. So in other words, it's appearing now in the dominant key. We then have um, a musical idea which um, we hear in the violins at measure 26 and is then set to the words, the crooked straight and the rough places plain in the following measures. Notice how that is closely related to the idea at measure four in the opening section. And um, and then notice how we have at measure 43 the same cadence which concluded the opening section. And that's followed by a new opening gesture, a return to the opening words, every valley. Albeit, notice how the, the key here is not, takes a moment for us to recognize it. We, in fact, as the voice sings every valley that first time, it moves us back from the key of E major, the dominant, back to E major. 
And quickly beyond that, we then get the second repetition of every value. This is at measure 46. The voice is now outlining the theme on an A major chord. We realize we're now in the subdominant key. Um, after another long melisma on the word exalted, we then have um, a, a second return, as it were, and at measure 53, the voice sings every valley again in the opening way in the key of E major. And the music goes around again, as it were, with the same words, the same series of ideas, more or less. That all comes to a conclusion at a very dramatic moment at measure 73. Notice the fermata on the third beat of that measure. And then the voice gets a, um, a moment, which although it's not marked, um, is effectively Handel's invitation to sing um, an elaborated cadenza. Um, that is to say, a, a moment um, when the soloist can, can improvise a concluding phrase to the piece, which Handel marks very simply with, with um, an indication of how to sing a cadence. But a singer um, can feel free to elaborate that. As you listen to different recordings, you can observe how they might do that. And that takes us into the final cadence in the vocal part at measure 75, after which notice how the orchestra plays again the same music as it had played at the start to conclude the movement. Now, I think you have seen before um, movements in which something similar to this happens. Um, that's the same movements in which we have a theme which which returns, not always complete, sometimes it returns in fragmented form, as as we observe here with individual measures of the opening music occurring on their own in, in various places, either identical in a, even identical form or altered, and in which we see the um, the theme also returning in um, a variety of keys. Um, that form, of course, is ritornello form. We've seen it before in instrumental music. We saw it, for instance, in the concerto by Vivaldi. Here we see it used as a basis for the structure of an aria. Um, by the way, Handel also uses ritornello form in his De Capo arias. If this, this um, whole aria had been simply the A section of a De Capo aria, then it could well have been written in, in written other form in much of the same way. It's um, a very effective form for a piece like this. Notice how the opening theme, never, the part we never always call written on the low, those first nine measures, occurs in full only at beginning and end, which serves as an effective framing device, but it unites the principal ideas in the movement, giving us a sense of, of unity. We then get this sense of the soloist part emerging organically from that. And yet the soloist part sounds fresh and exciting because it's constantly inventing new ways of developing, repeating, or continuing the various motives. 
At the same time, meaning gets attributed to the motives in Vibrationello as time goes on. When we first hear the violins play at the start of the piece, we don't realize that that music is is going to be set to the words every valley, every time it appears in the vocal part. Um, another interesting moment is the way in which Handel sets the words of the crooked straight and the rough places plain. Notice here how at the word straight, he has a single note held and then and the rough places plain is set, at least initially, to the absolute simplest possible vocal line, a repeated B at measures 29 and 30. And we realize this is an instance of what we call word painting. That's to say, Handel is um, using a musical motif which illustrates the meaning of the words. The, the plainness of the melody could not be clearer. We now can identify other instances of that. The word exalted, for instance, is repeatedly set to the most elaborate, the most showy of all possible melismas. The word crooked is sometimes set to the most surprising melodies. Consider, for instance, the form of melody at measure 33, which includes the, the rising fourth, the falling tone, the falling um, sixth, um, the absolute opposite of a, um, a, a simple, straightforward way of, of delivering a melody. This technique of word painting um, allows the music to remain relevant to the text. It makes the match between words and music seem fitting. And that's certainly a very important um, aesthetic in the 18th century, that music should be, should be fitting and appropriate. And it also um, is is interesting it's playful um, it is inventive and those are are things in which we can take take great pleasure and that's part of what makes this um, such enjoyable music for us finally i would like to comment on handel's choruses and i'm going to talk about two in particular first of all the chorus he trusted in God, which is um, number 2.6 in your score packet, or on Spotify, it's disc one, track 26. And then I'll talk about the chorus, the most famous piece in the whole of Messiah, the chorus Hallelujah, which is um, in your, in your um, score packet um, at uh, if I'm a number, um, 2.21, and on Spotify, it's disc two, track 11. First of all, then, the, um, the chorus, He Trusted in God. I recommend that you listen to this piece before I speak about it. 
this this piece is an example of what we call a fugue. We can call it, of course, a choral fugue since it's set as a chorus. And a fugue is a distinct genre in its own right. The um, music here perhaps is quite a good introduction to the idea of fugue. There are certain common features possessed by most 18th century fugues, which this piece possesses and which I can therefore speak about. But it's also worth understanding that it's a genre which is all about um, invention and about um, the, the way in which a composer can use an idea to the best advantage. And therefore, it is um, it is something that in its, its details is worked out uniquely in every instance. The most conventional part of the fugue is the, the opening. We are introduced to a theme, which is known by the special term subject. And the subject of a fugue is in a typical fugue going to run throughout the entire work. In other words, the, the whole fugue is going to be devoted to the, the repetition of the subject and invention based upon it. Here the subject is quite long. It is the whole of a phrase somewhere verses, he trusted in God that he would deliver him, let him deliver him if he delight in him. Those um, five, or to be, to be precise, um, those 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 um, four and a half measures are the whole duration of the fugue subject. Notice what happens when the fugue subject comes to an end, and I would define its end very precisely as being the third beat of measure five, because of course the theme starts with a rest. Um, that rest, that coordinate rest, we can observe in the tenor part in the middle of measure five, immediately preceding the entry of the tenor part, singing the same words. He trusted in God that he would deliver him, let him deliver him if he delight in him. The tenor part here is singing what we know as the answer. The answer is very much like the subject. It is recognizably the theme sung again. But this time, the subject has been altered. For most of its duration, the tenor part sings the subject a perfect fifth higher. In, in other words, the, the answer is a perfect fifth higher than the initial subject was. That's a more precise way to say it. But Handel makes an important change. Notice how the subject started in the bass and he trusted with a, a G and a C. And then when the tenor enters, that's reversed, and we have a C and a G. That's a, a switch that gives a certain symmetry to these two themes um, and makes them well paired together. In this view, as soon as the answer has been completed, that's at the beginning of measure 10, the next voice enters the alto. Notice how we're having each voice enter one at a time and in this fugue, they enter in ascending order. The alto sings the subject in its original form, starting with a G and a C. 
so in the Invertonic key. And when the alto comes to an end in the middle of measure 14, the soprano takes its turn, the final turn, and sings the theme in the form of the answer again. So we had now subject answer, subject answer. The theme comes to a conclusion in the soprano at the beginning of measure 19. Now what's been happening in the meantime while each of these voices has taken its turn at the subject? The other voices have been um, introducing what we can call counter subjects. That's to say, um, musical ideas that accompany the subject when the subject is being sung by another voice. And we can even see that there's a certain similarity between some of our counter subjects. Look at the um, what the bass sings at measure six, if he delight in him, let him deliver him. And compare that to what the tenor sings in the equivalent place when the alto is singing the subject, that is to say at measures 10 and 11, if he delight in him, let him deliver him. It's not precisely the same, but it is similar enough that we can, we can recognize a certain regularity to, to this musical idea. Of course, further countersubjects have to be invented as the other voice, other voices enter. Then at measure 19, when all the voices have entered and have sung the theme in full, we have a change. Those first 19 measures are known in technical language as the exposition, the, the setting out of a subject. Now we have an episode, a passage in which the subject, the theme, is temporarily absent. We have instead a series of um, interjections of the voices using musical ideas which are derived from the theme but, but are not the same as a full statement of the theme. This episode doesn't last long. It comes to an end at measure 22 when the bass has the theme entering in another in another key the first notes are f and b flat so we recognize that as being the theme in the key of b flat major and then this is fun notice how only a measure later the alto starts with a theme in exactly the same way we have what is known here as a, a stretto a close imitation between two voices of the same theme and Handel pursues that for a little while, for as long as it works. And then we have another episode which continues until Handel is able to introduce a similar effect. This time it is into the key of E flat with a tenor entering on the very last beat of measure 27 and the soprano following immediately afterwards in the next measure. Um, after another um, episodic passage, Handel then has the theme enter at um, the end of measure 41 in the, in the bass, and now the key is G minor. Notice how Handel has, 
has switched the the key from um, has switched switched the key back to the original minor um, tonality of the start, which is now G. And he gives a full statement of the base, ending at forty six after another episode we get an entry of the highest voice for soprano at measure 50. this statement of effect has to be changed a little bit because it would naturally contain a note that was too high for sopranos to sing with any degree of comfort so handel makes a small change to the theme to accommodate that this entry notice is now in the original key C minor, starting with a G and a C. And all these entries, also they start with a falling fifth, so they are entries in the um, in the form of a subject rather than the form of the answer. There's another very brief episode, and then the piece ends with another entry in the bass, again in the tonic. This is in the middle of um, measure 57. And then Handel finishes with one of his um, distinctive dramatic cadences. Notice how he marks the last three measures adagio, which means slow, and he has a, a general pause for one beat at the start of the third measure from the end, which um, highlights the, um, the extraordinary dissonant chord that preceded um, that, that moment, um, that chord on which he stopped at, at let him deliver him, um, is a um, dominant seventh chord in its third inversion. And then in the adagio, um, Handel gives us that, that very satisfying cadence, which we expect at the end of the piece, a, a perfect cadence in C minor. So I, I talked through that to give you an idea of how a, how a fugue works. And I want to do that so as also to make us more sensitive to the form of the, the other choruses, which are not um, strict fugues, although they very often handle style, have elements of fugues contained within them. The Hallelujah Chorus starts with a free measure um, orchestral ritornello. Uh, we must be in doubt at the start, of course, whether it really is going to be um, a true ritornello or not. It's so short. Um, we can use that word ritornello, however, in the um, 17th and 18th centuries um, in a loose way for a, a passage like this that um, sets out as if it is going to be ritornello, even if it leaves us in doubt about whether it's um, actually that in a, a structural sense. And then we have the, the famous um, um, hallelujahs, some of the chorus homophonically, to say all of the, the same rhythm simultaneously um, and using um, those those strong notes in the in the diatonic um, um, key of, of D major D major of course is, is a key that Handel has chosen for a reason um, it's an excellent key for trumpets to play in in his period and Hence, it, um, it's a, a good choice for a piece like this that he wants to sound very triumphant and to have the trumpets playing a large role in. Um, <clears throat> Notice also how 
handle sets off each repetition of Hallelujah with rests in between each one so that we get that exclamatory feeling to the to the work. And also consider how very different this is from the start of a fugue. The fugue started with each voice coming in in turn of the same theme. Here, by contrast, we have all the voices entering simultaneously for this um, massive um, statement of a single theme, which um, in which three of the voices are serving as as accompanying parts. After the opening section of increasingly um, short and excited hallelujahs, Handel introduces then a new theme it hasn't heard been heard before at the phrase, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. This is from measure 12 onwards. It's a um, simple melodic idea. It rises from A to D and then falls from D to A using the notes of a D major scale. It's um, expansive and diatonic and very smooth compared to what has come before. Notice also how Handel writes beneath the basso continuo of that phrase, tasto solo. It's an instruction that the um, instruments like the organ or the harpsichord, which are providing the, the harmony in the basso continuo section, should drop out at this point. Only the melody instruments play the bass should, should sound. The result is, I think, meant to sound somewhat archaic. It's rather like the, um, the, 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 the effect of a, of a plain style, 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 perhaps. Notice how all the parts, all the violins, all the strings, all the singers are singing exactly the same melody, albeit in different octaves. So Handel doesn't want the um, instruments in the continuous section to ruin the, the effect of the of a monophonic line at this point. Handel then repeats the cider a few times, alternating each time with the interjecting hallelujahs. And then at measure 22, he does a logical thing, which is to continue the music by combining the two ideas, not now in alternation, but actually simultaneously. He has the sopranos sing the for the Lord God omnipotent phrase, while first the tenors and then other parts come in and sing the hallelujahs as an accompaniment. <coughs> Handle at this point is building up that dense polyphonic texture, which is characteristic of the fugal style, but he's got to that texture in a very different way from the fugue. And he continues for some time with different voices entering with the slow theme and other voices singing the hallelujahs in a filigree around that. That section comes to an end when the voices come to a cadence at the middle of measure 32 and the um, instruments um, play a one measure interlude before the next section starts at the end of measure 33. And that next section is again um, stately and homophonic. Um, before we had a melody that moved from A to D and back to A, 
here we have a melody um, which which falls by step from A down to D, the kingdom of this world. And um, here, um, Handel has a a true um, polyphonic style. I think it's meant to sound somewhat old-fashioned, even style very prolifically, perhaps. Um, four parts sing homophonically, but in a um, a staid manner. It's somewhat like a, a chorale or hymn at this point, um, which gives a, a grand and very religious air to the proceedings. And at this point, Handel does something which is um, playful. It's an instance of word painting um, and also perhaps rather surprising to us. He, having stated the phrase, the kingdom of this world, he repeats the same music for the words is become. Of course, is become is only three syllables and can't therefore be set to the, the six syllable phrase of the kingdom of this world. But Handel solves that problem by having the strings play the, the full repeat while the voices um, join in after a few notes so that the phrase concludes altogether. Um, as before, what does the kingdom of this world become? It becomes, as the text says, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And see how Handel achieves this. The bases at the kingdom of our Lord sing exactly the same phrase as the kingdom of this world, except they start an octave higher, while the other voices make some some clever shifts. See how the alto phrase at the kingdom of this world is repeated by the sopranos at the kingdom of our Lord, but an octave higher, while the phrase some of the sopranos at the kingdom of this world is taken up by the altos, although one note is changed for second note of kingdom. Why is it changed? Well, for a, a simple reason. Um, Handel certainly wanted that note to be sung, and that's why he put it in the tenor voice at that point. But it couldn't be sung by the altos, because that would have caused an unfortunate um, faux pas, a solecism, in um, Handel's um, part writing, as to say the way in which he has the various melodies sung at this time all combine. That problem is... Um, in the relationship between the soprano voice and the alto voice. Imagine the alto voice had indeed um, had two A's and then fallen to G and then F sharp, um, as we would have expected, given its basis in the preceding soprano line. Um, in that case, as the alto part moved from A to G, the soprano part would simultaneously have moved from E to D. And both of those interval, those notes are fifths apart. A and E are a fifth, perfect fifth apart. Um, G and D are a perfect fifth apart. This produces a, a special um, effect which composers avoid at all costs. We call it parallel fifths because of the, the successive perfect fifths in the two voices. And so Handel makes a change to the less obvious part, the alto part, so as to remove that effect. He has the part leap down, not to the G, but to the D, 
producing perfect fifth and then perfect octave, a completely acceptable um, succession of consonances. So we've seen here how with a, a little bit of nip and tuck, um, Handel has transformed the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. It's a, um, um, a skilled contrapuntal technique is used um, to affect the, the word painting that was desirable at this point. What happens next? We have a new section beginning at measure 41 and a new theme, and he shall reign forever and ever. The theme is based upon um, a series of rising fourths and falling sixths, um, followed by a, a cadence. Um, we hear the theme first of all in, in D major, and then we see having been stated once of the bass, it's taken up by the tenor, um, which sings the theme A perfect fifth higher. And again, notice how the bass started with A and D, and the tenor starts with D and A. Um, quite right, um, I, I can see you're guessing this already. This is um, the way a fugue begins. Now, of course, here, the fugue is not the whole movement. The fugue is simply the style in which um, Handel has chosen to set this phrase, and he shall reign forever and ever. Um, since fugues um, have the potential to go on for as long as the composer likes, then that's perhaps another piece of word painting that Handel has adopted here. Um, how long does Handel carry on his, his fugue? We see an entry in the bass, followed by an entry in the tenor. At 46, the alto enters. And at um, uh, two measures later, we have a soprano enter. And then it immediately stops. We have a cadence at measure 51, and a new um, theme follows with the words King of Kings. So we have simply that first section of the fugue here, um, a fugal exposition um, to set this one phrase. So Handel is able to use the technique of fugue without, in fact, writing a full fugue here. We can, in fact, refer to this section as being in the style known as fugato. Um, that's to say the, the text of it is the texture of a fugue without, in fact, truly being one. The phrase King of Kings um, has a, a new um, majestic quality with its, its stately repeated notes. And then the interjections um, bring back the, the music of the opening hallelujahs. Um, and Handel then bases a long section upon this contrast between the, the melody and long notes of King of Kings and Lord of Lords against the, the, um, um, the, those, those interjections forever and ever, hallelujah, hallelujah. He uses here, as we're building excitement, um, the technique we've already learned to name, the technique of sequence. Notice how King of Kings at measure 57 is set on D, and then the whole text takes a step up a tone for and Lord of Lords on E. King of Kings follows an F sharp, and Lord of Lords um, brings us all the way up to a high G. And um, 
having reached that that very high note in the soprano, um, Handel writes a um, a cadence. Um, it's an imperfect cadence, in fact, of the key of D major um, at measure sixty nine. And then he brings back the phrase, and he shall reign <coughs> forever and ever, um, bringing back also the, the theme, with a minor change at the start, um, of a fugato section. And he then writes what is rather like what might have been the continuation of the, of the fugue he began earlier, with this time a complicated texture with subjects and counter-subjects in the various voices. He doesn't carry on this fugato section for long, however. He goes back to the um, King of Kings phrase with its customary interjections um, and builds the rest of the music out of the, um, out of the combination of those, those themes that we've just referred to, leading up to a huge cadence of the end. Notice how, once again, Handel ends his chorus with a dramatic pause in all the voices, the, the general pause, or the grand pause, as it's called, and then repeats one last time that word, hallelujah, for his final cadence. And you can see here the final chord is a chord of D major, the penultimate chord is a chord of G major. In other words, moving from chord, chord four to chord one in the key of D major, which is a, a plagal cadence, quite a, a rare occurrence, but appropriate for this um, movement of such heightened religious solemnity. In this chorus then, Handel has um, used a much more mixed style than perhaps in any of the movements we've looked at so far. Um, his technique essentially was to use a different musical motif for each different part of a text which he set. Although he certainly was very skillful at uniting movement by having the Hallelujah motif um, return frequently and by, um, by cleverly returning and combining um, his motifs as the piece went on. But the basic technique of having a new motif, a new, um, a new musical idea for each part of a text is essentially that of a typical Renaissance motet in which each line of a text might have a completely different um, musical setting for each, each subsequent one, and which a form therefore was generated not by repetition but rather by the pleasing um, contrast of each different musical idea and therefore the, the effective delivery of a text in which each part of a text has its own appropriate setting. Hadl finds a very pleasing middle way between the options of, of full integration and of the distinct delineation of each part of his um, text in this movement. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so um, satisfying a movement um, is, is precisely the, the way in which um, we first encounter discrete elements and then have them brought together in such a thrilling way.
So that concludes my my comments on Messiah. I hope that you've found them helpful and that they've enabled you to um, read the score with more sensitivity and um, find some, um, how to put it, I hope to exemplify some ways of talking about the music which, which draw out um, its properties and enable us to say something about how we experience them and why we experience them in particular ways. Um, I'm hoping that I shall soon be feeling better and that we'll be able to um, conclude um, our last classes of this semester in person. Um, I will be getting in touch um, in the coming week with some um, preparatory materials for our class on Friday in which we'll be reviewing